Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. It is here. It is Friday. Coming up, I'm going to talk with sociologist Devin Price about their book, Laziness Does Not Exist. One of the leading causes of feeling lazy is setting out to do too much. And then some reassuring information for those of you who are terrified that your hanging out muscles have completely atrophied. You're using more energy to project your voice through a mask and at a distance, and that is tiring. But first, it's our panel on the week that was with two excellent humans. First up is the author of the poetry collection Prelude to Bruise and the memoir How We Fight for Our Lives, Saeed Jones. Saeed, hi. Hi, good morning. I am so excited to have you on the show. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, we also have one of my very favorite humans, Kelly McEvers, the host of the NPR podcast Embedded. Kelly, hi. Hey. Man, next time we hang out, it better be at a bar. That's all I'm saying. Yep. Because that's probably (laughs) the only way we hang out until like great this moment yeah pretty much wow that is okay anyway um so as always a lot happened this week around the pandemic uh lawmakers have passed the third stimulus package the federal government ordered 100 million more vaccines from johnson and johnson and the cdc says that people who already are vaccinated are allowed to hang out with each other inside without masks So I think the thing we have to talk about is vaccine FOMO, which like for myself, I felt like I was I was actually really proud of how benevolent I was feeling about things where my main reaction when people said they were getting the vaccine was like, good for you. I'm so glad. But now that I know they can all hang out with each other, I am upset. Saeed, what do you think? I think I'm actually a little ambivalent. Hmm. I miss like you said, like going to the bar and and like specific friends. I, I, I miss specific people, many of whom like maybe live in different cities. So, you know, me walking into a random bar here in Columbus right now and getting to have like a, you know, it would, I, I really want a good dirty martini. Don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> but I'm not jealous yet because like right okay. now I'm like, I want us to get to the point where we're all vaccinated and I can just like see my people everywhere. Yeah, I think that makes you the most benevolent of the three of us, because Kelly... I gotta tell you, that's not a word I typically apply to myself. <laughs> hey, take it, take it. Kelly, you are you are bitter at this juncture, right? I am, I am full of rage. Um, <laughs> I'm full of, I am full of a rage that I, that I did not know, I, that di- I did not know I could possess. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I know that it's, I need to wait my turn. And right, of I'm course. fine with that. That is why, I mean, that is why there are rules. I like rules. I follow rules. I'm a journalist. Um, my parents have the vaccine. I just got this lovely text from my mother this morning about like, 
the fact that they're going to actually see human beings. Mm -hmm. My dad has been sick, not with COVID, like making it through this is this great feeling. But I, yeah, all of, despite all of that, I'm full of rage. And you know why? Is because people are cheating. So many people Mm -hmm. are cheating. I live in Los Angeles where everyone is just taken care of number one. I mean, I hear about, like, I hear friends being like, oh yeah, all the Hollywood agents are getting vaccinated and like, Mm -hmm. oh, and -and so-and-so, it's so-and-so site. Like everyone's jumping the line or such and such being like, well, I'm technically, you know, a litigator. So I should get, it's like, no, you're not on the list. So, I mean, I think that's part of it. And and then I have to check myself because it's the same thing as we did with like mask wearing, right? Where you get right. mad at people for not following the rules yeah. and you realize that that's not the point, right? The point is that everybody should get vaccinated. And so on my, even in my deepest, darkest rage, I realized that like, it doesn't really do me any good. And like, the point is that people should get shots at arms and we're all going to get it at some point. And like, we're all going to be healthier. For and there's it. a light yeah. at the end of the tunnel, you yeah, know, like exactly. we are closer than ever before. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did y'all see the onion headline from this week? CDC guidelines allow fully vaccinated people to gather indoors with curtains drawn to reduce spread of jealousy. <laughs> Don't look at me. Don't look at me. (laughs) So another huge story from this week was that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry did an interview with Oprah on Sunday. Meghan made some pretty serious allegations against the royal family, especially around racism. And the Queen actually issued a response a couple days ago. Prince William also chimed in. He said, I'm going to quote this, that the royals are very much not a racist family. Uh, I think it's fair to say this is a whole thing. Saeed, I know you watched because uh, my Twitter blew up partly because of you about it. Um, Kelly, did you watch on Sunday? I did not watch it while it was happening because I didn't have to. Like all y'all were just like (laughs) live tweeting it in such a great and like full way. Plus I'm on the West Coast. So like when it was happening for you guys, like I was just, it was like early here and I was like, I don't even need to watch this now. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I've got like the full account at this point, like all the highlights, all the headlines. Yeah. So I feel like I'm good. So Saeed, what did you think? Um, Well, you know, going into it, I was like, well, this is my Super Bowl. Uh, You know, (laughs) I, I made plans to watch it with a friend. We had snacks, like, you know, it was a whole thing. (laughs) Um, I planned kind of my whole weekend around it and I, but I have to admit that in terms of like actually watching it, it went from being, Ooh, spicy to what it is, which is an indictment of, of institutional racism, of, uh, colonization, um, you know, deep, deep, um, sexism, you know, and, uh, it was, it, there were moments where, and certainly when, you know, when Megan was talking about, you know, the point of like needing help, um, because she was having suicidal thoughts, which like anyone with a passing understanding of mental health knows that is code red. That is all hands on deck. That is a crisis. And then being denied help, it began to feel obviously very different. And, you know, um, 
And it's so interesting that even I think people who are like, oh, whatever, like it's celebrity gossip. And now we see, you know, it's impacting media, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's not just Piers Morgan. I'm seeing like all kinds of um, ramifications from the interview, even just beyond the royal family. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. It, it went from being entertaining to actually being, you know, emotional. And, and now we're actually seeing like some early maybe, but institutional kinds of ramifications um and you know until then you just think like that monarchy the firm the tabloids nothing will ever change them and like maybe maybe it will change Mm. yeah i think that's partly what's so fascinating about it because i don't like i'm not a person who's like super into royal family stuff i I think if I were, it would be like the reptile brain part of me that's like, ooh, salacious gossip, like give me more, you know, like injected in my veins. Um, And so I like I'm I was kind of conflicted seeing so many people like reacting to it on Twitter, partly because like, honestly, it sort of made me think of the Britney documentary, too, where it's like, okay, if fame is abuse, like if being famous partly has to do with like navigating all of this intense attention, like that can't be helping anybody. Right. And like, how much are we actually like supporting this system as much as we say we think it's ridiculous, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's very tricky. You know, we are implicated yeah. in this, but also there's something that you know, and this is obviously true with celebrity in the United States, but the royal family is also, it's a lot of projection and, and we're looking at our own families. And so when you see Prince Charles saying, I, you know, just like, I don't know what's going on in his statement. He was like, I'm devastated. Like, what? Are, I love them. Or, or Prince William with this, like, we are very, what's a strange phrase? Very, very much, much not. not a racist family. I think, <laughs> like, yeah, what? it's like, who, who but racists talk that way? You know, it, it's like, it, it's also, I think in a, in a, like a productive way, it's lighting up our own feelings about our own families, our own co-workers you know so even if you're like and i feel you it's kind of like royal drama like whatever it's it's you know it's a, it provides an opportunity as much as any book or film for us to kind of look at our own lives and i, and I think mm-hmm. that is valuable it's it's like the silver lining to a really bad hurricane <laughs> yeah totally. so i was curious to ask y'all did you know the grammys are this weekend oh what <laughs> That was the exact reaction I was hoping for. The what? Love that for them. Love that for them. Bless. Bless. (laughs) So I was going to ask if you care, but I feel like those reactions are like, they they say everything that needs to be said. I did kind of want to put you on the spot. I like looked at the best songs nominees and like didn't know any of them. None. Zero. Because, you know, I'm just that out of touch with cool stuff, I guess. Yeah, I mean, wow. um, such a, the Academy is uh, is so messed up. You know, they, they've got so much yeah. stuff to It's that I just feel to a certain like Fiona Apple or whatever I know, like was not nominated. And I was like, that's irrelevant. Like, you know, like you have demonstrated <laughs> to me that your capacity for celebrating excellence. Your failure uh, to recognize. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was curious, and I don't. It doesn't even have to be a song that came out in 2020, but especially given the fact that we are kind of at like the one year anniversary of COVID times here in the U.S., is there like a song that has really gotten you through the past year? Oh, that's a good. That would be like the the best song Grammy in your heart, you know? I think maybe like "Levitating" by Dua Lipa. Mm-hmm. Oh. If you wanna 
her whole album is really good, but there's something one I keep I return to it constantly. But it's been good in that when I listen to it, I get so caught up in the song, I actually forget about, I genuinely forget about everything else that's happening. Which is clutch these days, I think. That's what we want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dua Lipa is nominated. I can't remember if it's for that song. You should clean not. up. I mean, wow. Um, <laughs> what do you think, Kelly? Or is it like Leonard Skinner over there or something? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. I'm trying to think of, um, wait, 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 wait. And, uh, good, good typing sounds. Love it. I'm like at risk of being such a cliche. It's like more Irish people, but um, the <laughs> Fontaine's DC Boys in the Better Land. If you're a rock star, porn star, superstar, doesn't matter what you are, get yourself a good car, get out of here. It's just this like pop punk song that like isn't actually that good, but like anytime I'm just like I can't actually get out of bed. I'm, or it's raining and I need to drive around and smoke a lot of cigarettes and yell at the world. It'd be like that. Maybe I'm saying a few too many things here, but like, you know, you just like, and you know, like I can't be in my house one minute longer. You know, you just kind of put it on, turn it up really loud and like rock out. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I think... This is a song, Good Days. If y'all haven't heard it, it's beautiful. It's lush. I mean, it's about good days. Like, I think it's another one that just sort of transports you to a different place. Good day, mama. Safe to take a step out. Get some in now. Which is just like such a nice thing. Like it's a treat for your brain, you know? We deserve it. Totally. Oh, Kelly, turns out Fontaine DC was also nominated for a Grammy. So y'all are kind of on track. Oh, okay, we kind of be known. <laughs> well, they were? Really? I like, see, I just don't. I thought I just heard him on like the college station. <laughs> no, I like that you are both like effortlessly hip. It's all good. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Well, Saeed, Kelly, thank you so much. This was like such a delight. This was so fun. So fun to hang out with you guys. talked about burnout on the show before you know it's that idea that many of us feel like we're just running a race that never actually ends and that race is really hard work there is so much societal pressure on so many of us to get as much done as possible to get shit done to power through to measure our successes based on arbitrary metrics like twitter followers or how many unread emails you have in your inbox Somebody who is working to shift some of those pressures is Devin Price. They're a social psychologist who teaches at Loyola University here in Chicago, and they wrote a book called Laziness Does Not Exist. They are with us now. Devin, hey. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, thank you for taking the time. So something you talk about in the book is the laziness lie. Can you lay that out for us? So the laziness lie is how I talk about the beliefs a lot of us have internalized that come from our culture and our history about laziness and about productivity. And it really dates back to um, Puritanism. It has a lot to do with the legacy of enslavement um, and the Protestant work ethic. And it has three major tenets. 
that most of us absorb, even if we were never consciously taught them. And the first is that your worth is determined by your productivity. The second one is that you can't trust any needs or limitations that you feel inside of yourself that get in the way of that productivity. And the third final tenet of the laziness lie is that there's always more that you could be doing. So even if you are working 80 hour work weeks, maybe you're not volunteering enough or you're not exercising enough or your house is a mess. And so there's always things that you can feel shame about not doing enough of, even if you're really playing by the rules of this game. It's so fascinating to register my own response to when you call that a lie. And then when you say the statement of there's always more than you can do, because my immediate reaction is like, well, yeah, there is always more I could do. I mean, there's more that needs to be done in the world, but that doesn't mean that we can do it. You know, um, one of the leading causes of feeling lazy is setting out to do too much. Hmm. And the people who feel the laziest are really the people who are fighting the most valiantly against the the greatest number of struggles or just writing a to-do list for themselves that's just insurmountable by definition. So it's kind of a horrible paradox in that way. I think it's also important to put your book in the context of your own backstory. You've talked about how you were a super high achiever all your life. You got a PhD at the age of 25, which is completely insane. But after you graduated, your body just kind of said, I can't do this anymore and gave out. Yeah. Yeah. I think my life really stands to show to people that even if you're capable of being a good little worker bee, being a achievement hunter who is really precocious, it still isn't ever going to mean that you're okay or, or take care of you. You know, I graduated college early. I finished graduate school early. I had a postdoc. I was working so hard. I was ignoring my body. Um, I didn't have a life. I didn't have a lot of social and emotional skills. And what do you know, um, once I finished my PhD, I just completely got super sick, uh, intense, like 103 degree fever every single night, heart murmur, anemia, all of this stuff, profoundly depressed. And it just wasn't sustainable for me. So, you know, if this worldview is bad, even for someone who could for a while succeed under its rules, then it got me thinking like this can't be sustainable or good for anybody. So what was it like for you to to reassess what was realistic for you to get done? It's so threatening and I, I still hate it. It still sucks so much to realize that like my most productive days are behind me if I'm being healthy and that I am only as life goes on going to probably do less. So I'm always finding myself still little rules or conditions that I've put on my worth that come from society, come from our kind of capitalist culture um, that I'm still letting influence me. So, you know, I'm pretty good at saying no to things at work now, but I still have rules for myself about like how often I should exercise that I have to really interrogate and go, does it really make me a better person to follow these rules? Yeah. What if I actually just did it when I felt like it? But that's really scary. You know, it's interesting to hear you mention the exercise thing, because I, I think that's one where I really get hung up on. And it's not exercise in particular, but it's it's that balance of taking the energy to do things that I know are good for me and that will eventually feel good even when I don't feel like it. Because sometimes I think there is that's when I see the greatest benefit of doing those things, you know, are those days when I'm just like, you know, I, I could lie in bed forever. But like, I bet if I like 
went outside and went for a walk, I would feel better and I could do stuff. But then it's also like how much of that is still buying into all that bullshit, you know? Yeah, it's really hard to juggle. And I think what it comes down to, especially for that example of exercise, is the mm-hmm. lives we lead are and the work schedules that we have are built around a very 1950s nuclear family kind of idea of a person's schedule. So the idea that a person would have the time to work a job, make dinner for themselves and their families and exercise and do all these things. That was never something that was viable for anybody. It's based on a model of like a nuclear family where there was a person at home who did some of the Mm -hmm. chores and cooking and didn't have a full-time job to make that sustainable for everyone. And even back then, of course, it wasn't sustainable. It was a miserable existence for a lot of people Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. who were in it. So we end up having to make really hard choices. So, you know, I'm, I'm with you for me taking a walk outside is a real sanity saver and it is good physically. So I'll try to find things in my life that I can cut back on or do kind of a crappy job of to free up time to do that. So for me, you know, the balance is I don't cook a lot. You know, I have some Wendy's chicken sandwiches in my fridge that are like, you know, my groceries for the week. Then I have time to exercise if I don't have to worry about that, you know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm just trying to picture how a cold Wendy's chicken sandwich tastes and I'm a little worried, frankly. (laughs) It's not perfect, but you know, I'm all about like letting go of perfectionism and, and finding what corners you can live with cutting. And that's definitely one for me. Well, I mean, and <laughs> I don't know, I think so much of this conversation has to has to have to do with the idea of grace too, right? And like, just giving yourself and giving other people the benefit of the doubt. Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned giving other people the benefit of the doubt too, because this worldview, it's not just how we beat up ourselves for not doing enough. It really is tied up in how we think about public policy and social welfare and how we treat, you know, in my case, my students or how a manager treats their employees. If we look at everyone with this frame of they're being lazy, they're not doing enough, our worlds become so hyper-independent and small. Whereas if we trust people and realize everyone's doing their best and needs more support, you can look at yourself with more grace. You can have more trusting, healthy relationships with other people. Everything just gets so much easier. Absolutely. Are you, I don't know, I'm curious how you think the pandemic has maybe changed or maybe just kind of reinforced the worldview that you've worked through in this. Book. Oh gosh. Yeah. The pandemic has really thrown it up in even sharper relief than ever before. So um, there've been a couple of reports that came out. One was in Forbes, one was was in um, SBC Global, showing that worker productivity has actually gone up 40% during the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. So people are doing more work than ever in large part, just because there's nothing else to do. And we don't, I was going to say, I can't decide if I'm like proud of that or kind of disgusted. Yeah, I think it's disgusting. I think it's understandable. You know, (laughs) (laughs) we work to distract from the despair, but it's really sad that like, People feel guilty for not making the most of this time when, in my opinion, in a just world, nobody should have to do much of anything right now. Like just by sitting at home, you're saving people's lives. That should be enough. Um, But it's not in the way that our world currently works. Mm -hmm. Devin, do you ever wish we could just like burn it all down and start again from scratch? Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh yeah. I don't, I don't right? know what the answer looks like. A lot of people in the context of this book bring up things like universal basic income and healthcare reform, which I'm definitely on board with, but like mm-hmm. the, the main takeaway is this is not sustainable and it's not humane. And we really need to change how we look at other people and how we take care of people as a society. I think that's such a valuable lesson. And thank you so much for chatting with me about it today. Oh, yeah. Always happy to talk about this stuff. Coming up, are you exhausted by social interactions these days? You're not alone. We will hear from Katie Haney, who just wrote an article for The Cut called I Forgot How to Hang Out. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. As we near the one-year anniversary of lockdowns across the U.S., lots of us are reflecting on all the changes of the past 12 months, especially how things that used to seem really simple and obvious are not anymore. I'm thinking about things like using cash or getting a haircut or going outside or even hanging out with friends. One person who recently wrote an article about how hard it is to see people is Katie Haney. She writes for The Cut and her recent story is called I Forgot How to Hang Out. Katie, hi. Hi, nice to be here. So should we just engage in a bunch of like awkward small talk now? Yeah, I mean, that's about (laughs) all I'm capable of. So yes. (laughs) Okay, so you go into describing a scene of trying to hang out with a friend. I feel like we all can kind of picture our own version of that. You know, you start with like maybe even a seemingly innocent, like, how's it going? And, you know, either nothing is really going on because we're pretty much not leaving our houses or what is going on is super intense for like fun, chatty, small talk. Yeah. Um, do you think it's still better than nothing? It's like something that I've been thinking a lot about. I think it kind of depends, actually. Like for now, mm-hmm. I I don't know that I'm convinced that the in-person interaction is better than a phone call um, because yeah. so I'd been finding it super tiring to interact with people and I haven't seen friends a lot but on the few times that I have seen them outside for half an hour or an hour even I'd find myself completely exhausted afterwards and I was like is this just psychological or what's going on but I talked to a professor of communication at the University of Arizona Chris Seagrin who told me you know there's a real reason for that and it's that you're using more energy to project your voice through a mask and at a distance and that mm-hmm. is tiring and that's mm-hmm. sort of self-explanatory but just not something that I had understood um so that being said there are some advantages to talking to someone over the phone when you can just talk normally and not worry mm-hmm. about the distancing and um kind of make do with that method until you can actually see someone in person without worrying about those things. Right. Cause there's also just like the actual physical danger of like, you know, constantly worrying about keeping your distance and all that. I mean, it's taxing. It's yes. a lot. Yeah. And there is like scientific proof that hearing the voice of your friend 
and talking to them is better than like texting with someone in any given day, right? Yes. And um, I talked to Celeste Headley, who's the author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, which is obviously very relevant right now. Um, And she said, you know, she suggested just talking to people for five minutes, just saying like, can we talk for five minutes and then sticking to that. Um, And I liked that a lot because I think people tend to think of a phone conversation as something they don't have time for. And texting is sort of like just permanently background, like I can always be fit in. But Mm -hmm. really, if you can talk to someone for just five minutes, that's so much more productive and beneficial to you than texting them on and off throughout the day will be right now. Right. And I think it was the expert you mentioned earlier, Chris Segrin at the University of Arizona, who also talked about the idea that social skills atrophy with disuse, which I feel like a lot of us can relate to. Absolutely. I mean, I've just found that, and I don't, I was conscious in writing this. I was like, I wasn't, it's not like I was ever the life of the party. (laughs) Or or, it's fine. It's fine. We all have our strengths. Um, But, you know, I do think I was at some point capable of stringing a normal sentence together. And even that now feels impossible. I talked in the story a little bit about my like very stunted interactions with like the the Starbucks barista who I've yeah. come to know. And it, it's just like she's trying to be friendly. I'm trying to be friendly, but I cannot think of anything to say. And um, small talk with people that we interact with on a daily basis is a skill. It's something that we most of us practice if we're polite and normal and nice <laughs> and um <laughs> Now it's become fraught from a virus perspective, and that makes it harder to seem normal when we actually do talk to them. It's just like, Mm -hmm. what did we used to say to be polite and friendly in these interactions? It's just gone from our brains. Mm -hmm. It's so nice to hear that I was worried that the moral of this story would be more of like a power through situation than a hang in situation. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're saying if we just kind of like cut ourselves some slack for a couple more months, things should get easier. Yeah. And I think that it for me, I mean, this wasn't as explicitly stated in the story, but something that I was thinking about a lot when I was writing it is just feeling like I'd had some weird interactions with strangers. And I I just had been feeling like everyone is acting so weird. Like, what is everyone's problem? And in, in reporting the story, I realized like we all have a problem and it's that we're not interacting. We're not communicating. Mm-hmm. Like it allowed me to be a little bit more forgiving toward other people and also myself and just accept that this is something that we aren't cut out for. We're social creatures. We're meant to be in contact with each other. And so everyone's a little bit the worse for the wear right now. <laughs> I'm laughing because yesterday I let my dog out to go pee and she's a corgi. Mm-hmm. And this old dude came up and was like, oh, the queen, the queen of England has those dogs. And I was like, actually, they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect example. Like, he was probably like, what the hell? I was just trying to say something nice. And I'm like, yeah, the last one died a couple years ago now. <laughs> It'll, you know, it'll come back. It'll be okay. <laughs> I sure hope so. Katie Haney, thank you so much. It was it was a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, thank you, likewise. <laughs> Bo- 
before we go today, I do need to issue a quick correction. Earlier in today's episode, in just the last segment actually, so like 30 seconds ago, I said that all the Queen's Corgis are dead, which is still technically kind of true, but it turns out just this week the Queen got two new Corgis. So it is fair to say that the royal family is very much not, not a Corgi owning family again. Before we wrap up, I have a little bit of homework for everybody. Remember homework? We are still taking voicemail submissions for what everyone will be holding on to as we begin the second year of the pandemic and maybe even start to come out of this thing. Is there anything that became a part of your life over the past 12 months that you want to try to bring with you into whatever's coming next? Maybe you've been going on more walks in your neighborhood. Maybe you've been good about doing five-minute phone calls with friends. Maybe it's just a newfound conviction about what you don't want in your life anymore. Here's an example that we got from Allie in Chicago. There's actually a whole bunch of stuff that I am hoping to take with me out of the pandemic and onto the other side. I've started writing and doing yoga every day. I really like that we're talking about mental health and our feelings a lot more as a society. But the thing that I really want to, I guess, bring the most is that I started streaming my photo editing process for some of my friends. Okay, bye. Isn't that nice? Thank you, Allie. Now is your turn. Record yourself on your phone and send the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com and you might just end up in the podcast. All right, that's it for this week. The show was produced by me and Isabel Carter. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.